I'm supposed to give you announcements, so I'm going to do that, and then we're going to start, and the people will just have to catch up, and they'll learn the lesson that I tried to start as quickly as I can. Uh, but some of the things that are happening at the church that you need to know about is that in the Forge class, which is starting in two weeks, <clears throat> we're going to be covering the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be covering what the Holy Spirit uh, or what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit and his various ministries. So that's coming up. And then to live is Christ, uh, the women's conference on September 9th. And um, that is a 40 or $50 registration. I think you can still do it up till this day. So uh, you can check into that if you like to be a part of that. It's going to be held at the church. Should be very, very good. We have a golf outing that's going to happen on September 19th. And um, that's men and women. I, I go and play golf. Um, well, I go and I visit the forest around the golf course looking for my ball most of the time. Women's ministry, the fall ministry begins um, in September. All of the different classes that are going to be held, I guess on Thursday and Wednesday and all of that. And then Patriots Day, which I think is coming up on September 16th. What Patriots Day is about is that a bunch of our folks, our ladies primarily donate all kinds of baked goods. They're put together in a real nice basket. And then a bunch of our people go to all of the first responders. We go to the police stations, we go to the fire stations, and we give them a token of our expression and appreciation. So if you want to be a part of that, that's there. And then there's Grief Share, which uh, I think is September 30th. And that is for individuals who have suffered a loss of a loved one. Uh, it is a place where people who have all experienced the loss of a loved one get together and learn from the scripture how it is that we can deal with grief. So that's a, one of the things that's happening, and that comes up at the end of this month. Are you part of that, Jim? You, are you a teacher of that? It's very, it's very, very good. I've heard nothing but great things from our people who have gone to that and, and such. Well, uh, if you are here today uh, to learn about Roman Catholicism, you're in the right place. Uh, sorry for any of the inconvenience of leaving the church building and, and coming here, but that's just the way it is. We're running out of space. Um, the last time I did this, um, there was 82 people shoved in one classroom. So uh, this will thin out the crowd. The only you really faithful people who want to learn will show up here. So thank you for that. So I'm going to begin by telling you where I'm coming from personally so you know. Uh, I was born and raised in the city of Chicago, and I was raised in a Roman Catholic family. I went through uh, eight years of Catholic grammar school, St. Richard's uh, Catholic School. Um, I went through four years of what they call Catholic catechism classes uh, because when it came time to go to high school, my dad wanted me to go to St. Rita's, which Chesley graduated from. Um, but I wanted to go to Kelly High School, uh, the public school, for only one reason. Girls. Girls. <laughs> uh, 
St. Rita is an all-boys school. <laughs> Tremendous sports teams. They always had some of the best sport team, sports teams in the city. And some of, uh, some of the people made it to the major leagues and all that. Uh, but uh, I went to Kelly High School. But the deal my dad made with me was that I had to go every Wednesday night to Catholic catechism class. So every Wednesday night, me and about four other high school students attended the classes there. And uh, that's the way it was. So I say that to tell you that I come from a Roman Catholic stock. Uh, I love my relatives. They're my friends. And, and most of them are still the ones that are alive. Most of my, all of my aunts are gone, are they not? I think so. I'm talking to my sister Linda. You went to a Catholic school yeah. too, St. Richard's, and you went Saint to St. Barbara's, which is no longer there, I hear. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I want you to know that as I teach this, I'm not here to attack um, uh, folks who are Roman Catholics. I'm not, I'm not, that's not my job. My job is to show you the difference between a church like ours and Roman Catholicism. The, pe the pr trouble with people that are Roman Catholics is not their Catholicism. The trouble with people who are Roman Catholics is that they're sinners who need a savior, like us all. I'm a sinner who needed a savior. So that's the trouble. And you say, why is that a trouble? because you better know God's formula for how to deal with your sin. And unfortunately, you're going to learn the formula for salvation or deliverance from sin that is found in Roman Catholicism is one that does not square with divine revelation. I mean, that's as honest as I can be. I want to remind you as we begin to start, but I want to make sure you know I love Catholic people. I mean, I, that was my, my family, you know, and my friends. And where I lived in the city of Chicago, I never met a Protestant kid until I was 13. <laughs> I went to high school, Catholic, or not Catholic, St. Rich, um, Kelly Public School. It was Ash Wednesday. And I looked at this guy next to me and I said, how come you don't have your ashes? And he said, I'm not Catholic. And I went, wow, I've heard of people like you. <laughs> you know, so that was my first experience. But anyways, I just wanted to remind you of that. If you, you got your notes there. And I want to tell you what is the big first difference between a church like New Community Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And if you look at the opening paragraph, it says, uh, what causes the major distinction between this church and the Roman Catholic Church revolves around the question of what constitutes the final authority reference for our faith and practice. Now, let me make sure you get that. This is the big question. Where should we go? What should be our source authority for what we believe? Where is a reliable, matter of fact, a source authority that has its origin from God to us? You see, where do I get that? That's the big issue. For those of us at New Community Church, we look at the scriptures as the final authority for our faith and practice. 
and the final arbiter of truth. We're going to determine truth as we see it found revealed in scripture. That's that next sentence there. It says, we at New Community Church believe that the Bible is the final and sufficient authority for what we believe and how we should live as followers of Christ. It is the final arbiter of our faith and practice. Now, if you've got a Bible there and you can balance it on your lap, I want you to look at why, why this is true from the Bible. Second Timothy chapter three is where we're gonna begin. If you got it, maybe you have your Bible on your phone, that's okay. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, begin with verse 15. Let me tell you the background here. This is the, the last will and testament of the apostle uh, Paul, because at the conclusion of this letter, he would be martyred for the faith. So he's about to pass the torch of his ministry to young Pastor Timothy. And so there's some significant things that he wants to tell him. And he says in verse 15, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, and that from childhood, that would be Timothy's childhood, you have known the sacred writings. Uh, the word sacred means that which is holy and set apart. That which is holy and set apart. The sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now I'm going to break down a lot of these words for you because I'm not going to assume that everybody understands them. So when he talks about in the word of God, you find the revelation of salvation. Salvation from what? Uh, the Greek word sotir is translated salvation. And you say, why are you referring to the Greek? Because the New Testament in its original, original autographs was written in Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the first century Greek language uh, that was used as a commercial language in those days. And what you have in your hand, depending on if you have a Bible in your hand, you have a, a, a from Greek to English translation. If you have like a New American Standard, a King James Bible, um, ESV, all of those are direct from Greek into English. The one I have is a New American Standard. So if you were to go to the Greek language, you would see that it uses the word soza to refer to salvation. Here, it actually translates the word salvation. What does it mean? Salvation means to be rescued from an imminent danger. And if you were to study the context of scripture, you'd find out that the eminent danger is sin and the eternal condemnation it brings to you. So in other words, what he was telling young Pastor Timothy is you know from childhood, this is information that your mother and grandmother, you, if you turn earlier in the book, you'll find that to be true. You learn from your mother and your grandmother about what the Bible teaches, the sacred writings teach about salvation. And he also says in that verse, uh, that they're able to give you wisdom of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The word faith is very critical. Uh, the word faith does not mean to know important facts. A lot of times people will say to us, well, I know that Jesus died for my sins. I know he was resurrected. Now, that, that's enlightenment. 
That's not faith. That means you, you've got an understanding of certain information. Faith is total trust, absolute confidence and conviction, so much so that you're willing to bet your eternal destiny on it. So faith in Christ is that. It's completely focused, narrowly focused on the death and resurrection of Christ to save you. That's what faith is. Uh, somebody gave an illustration years ago of a man who would cross Niagara Falls pushing a wheelbarrow over a tightrope. And I, I've been to Niagara Falls, Cindy and I together, and I, I'm afraid of heights, so I was constantly saying, yeah, that's nice. I didn't want to get close to, you can get pretty close, you know. And it, it's terrifying, this big drop, and I can't imagine a guy walking across on a tightrope because, listen, the fall is nasty, yeah. very nasty. And so he did that, and when he came back, the crowd that saw him do it, they were all cheering, clapping their hands. They'd never seen anything like it. And he said, folks, he shouted out, do you believe I can do it again? And the crowd went, yes, yes. And then he looked at the man in the front, and he said, sir, do you believe I can do it again? And the man said, yes. He said, well, this time get in the wheelbarrow. Uh -huh. yeah. That would be faith. Do you understand that? He would be betting his, his well-being on whether or not this man could do it. So when the Bible talks about faith, it means this, that you have narrowly focused your total trust in the death and resurrection of Christ as your only hope of salvation. Very important. Well, then verse 16 Verse 16 says, and this is the main verse, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, thunopsis, that's the Greek word that means the breath of God. All scripture is the breath of God. That's a metaphor for this. All scripture has its origin in God. It comes from God. It's from the mouth of God. All scripture, all scripture is from the mouth of God. And profitable, he's going to talk about it as being uh, sufficient for your set-apartness to God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So scripture is that which informs the person who exercises faith in Jesus Christ how to live how to conduct themselves. So that's why here in our church, we say that the ultimate authority for how we live and what we believe is only the scripture. It's only the scripture, period. And that's going to be a big difference between us and Roman Catholicism. I'm going to show it to you in just a minute. Uh, take a look with me at 2 Peter. Just Flip back to 2 Peter. Let me show you how that scripture got to us. 2 Peter. <clears throat> In 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 19, he says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Let me tell you 
we're, we're sort of parachuting right into the midst of this. So I have to kind of give you a background. What Peter was talking about is the prophetic word, the prophecy of scripture on the subject of the second coming because false teachers were attacking the second coming. So he says, we've got the prophetic word that is more certain than any personal experience or anything anyone else says. And then he's going to tell you why. Where, why do we get, where do we get this prophetic word? Verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. He was not talking about how someone, how someone interprets the Bible. He was talking about the prophetic word on the second coming. It's not the imagination of the writers. It's not the individuals who wrote that, that made that up about the second coming. Well, where did they get it? Well, then he tells you, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It is the movement of the Holy Spirit in these individuals who penned for us the 66 books of the Bible that we call the Word of God. Let me just show you maybe two examples of that. Take a look in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We'll be in Acts. We're going to look at Acts 4 and one other passage. <clears throat> what evidence do we have that this book is inspired? What evidence, what proof do we have that this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit? Well, let me show you some passages where it actually says that. In Romans chapter 4, uh, uh, Peter and John were arrested and they were let go by the Sanhedrin. After the, the Sanhedrin is like the Supreme Court of Israel, uh, Peter and John were let go and they went back to the church and began to praise the Lord because they were released. They were threatened not to preach about the resurrection, but they wouldn't stop doing that. And this is what Peter began to talk about in his prayer. Uh, verse 24, and when they had heard this, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. Now watch this. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said. And then he quotes a portion of Psalm 2. So you've got David who was the one writing, right? But who is the one who is the true author? The Spirit of God. If I were to ask you, who wrote the book of Romans? You'd say, Paul, but who's the real author? The, Spirit. the Holy Spirit, God. Matter of fact, let me show you one other one. In the final chapter, Acts chapter 28, I believe, Yeah, Acts chapter 28. Give you a background again. Paul is under house arrest. Some Jewish people, Jewish leaders from Rome came to him. He shared the gospel. He told them that Jesus is the Messiah. He told them that salvation is only found in him. You need to repent of your sins. 
and believe in him. And these Jewish people did not, they did not agree. So if you look at verse 25, he says, and when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet to your fathers, saying, and then he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 9 and forward. So who was the human author who penned those words that he quotes? Who was that? Isaiah. But who is the true author? The Holy Spirit. So why am I telling you this and getting all excited? I don't know. It's part of my job. No. I'm telling you this because that's why we at New Community, if you come here, you always see us referencing the Bible. It's always about the Bible. It's always understanding the Bible, verse-by-verse verse study of the Bible. Why? Because it is the divinely inspired Word of God from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the book of Revelation. And it has been given to you and I as a gift I think one of the false ideas or notions is that the Bible is not understandable. It is understandable. Matter of fact, when a person does believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, God gives to them the Holy Spirit. He dwells in them and illuminates their understanding. So it's important that you get all that, okay? So that's where we're coming from. But what about Roman Catholicism? Well, let me tell you, number one, Roman Catholicism does believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God. They do believe that. Let me take those notes and you'll see that, by the way, the Roman Catholics, here's the difference. Here's, I should have said this at the beginning. In the Roman Catholic theology, they have three authorities that determine their faith and practice. We, remember I told you we have one they have three. Now, that's, that's why you see the big differences. If you've got an authority, you might have the same one initially, but if you have two more, then you're going to see a bigger, bigger difference between the two churches. Do you understand that? It's very important you get that. So they have three authorities. We're going to look at each one of them. The first one is the Bible and your notes there. Number one, Historically, the Roman Catholic Church has defended the authority of the Bible and declared it to be the infallible, that means not capable of error, inerrant, revelation of God. And I, I try, by the way, to quote them, not me. I want to quote what they say. So the handbook for today's Catholic puts it this way. The key characteristic of the church's dogmas, that would be its doctrines and its uh, teaching of practice, the key thing about the characteristic of the dogmas is that they agree with the sacred scriptures. The Roman Catholic Church lists as authentic and acceptable within the canon of scripture 73 books. Now you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, we have 66. Okay, well, let's figure out what happened. 46 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. You will note that the King James Version, New American Standard Version, the New International Version, I could put uh, the, inner, the ESV, have only 66 books. The additional books in the Catholic Version are referred to by Protestants as the Apocrypha. Apocrypha means extra-biblical, extra-biblical. 
uh, Apocrypha. These books were added to the canon. Canon means um, the collection of the books that were recognized as being divinely inspired. They were added to the canon during the Reformation, apparently to demonstrate the church's authority over the scriptures. Up until the year 1546, that's the year of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther, the Roman Catholic Church uh, Bible simply had 66 books. But in response to Luther's Reformation, which rallied around the authority of the Bible as the sole authority for our faith and practice, the other books were added to the Old Testament canon. So in other words, in 1546, Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk, who was very frustrated with a lot of things that were being done in those days. And, and, and to, to the Catholics' credit, they fixed a lot of that, but not all of it. Some of the things, uh, one of his big issues was the selling of indulgences. Um, there were people in his community. Uh, selling of indulgence was um, uh, if you gave a certain amount of money, it would shorten your stay in purgatory. Purgatory is a, according to Catholic teaching, uh, purgatory is a place uh, in between where if you die as a Catholic, you go to purgatory. Uh, it comes from a word that means to purge or make clean. You go to purgatory to have the stains of your sin from your soul purged or cleansed. That's purgatory. And then whenever that takes and however long that takes, then you could go into heaven. But from a Catholic perspective, here's the good news. There is something called the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit is all of the merit that was procured by Jesus, by Mary, and by other dedicated believers. In other words, these other dedicated believers had more than enough merit to get them into heaven. They had leftover merit. So there's treasury of merit. And what that means is you could tap into that. And one of the ways you did it was through the purchase of indulgences. And it would shorten your time in purgatory and get you to heaven. So I wanted to make sure that you understood that. And I'm trying to remember why I was telling you that. I, we got into something there. That, oh, why they had the extra books. So Martin Luther's running around, and his, his motto, one of his mottos, was sola scriptura. That's Latin for only the Bible. Luther was going to then those individuals who were in charge of the Catholic Church, and he was saying, listen, we can't get our doctrine and our faith, our beliefs from popes and councils of cardinals and, and traditions, we need to go solely to the Bible, solely to the Bible. And Martin Luther, I want you to understand this, he wasn't trying to um, reform, um, leave the Catholic Church. He wanted to stay in the Catholic Church and reform it. So he wasn't trying to, to get out of it, he was trying to reform it. And they pulled him in front of a number of councils uh, because he was teaching sola scriptura, as I mentioned, and that basically means that it's only the Bible, it's the final authority for our faith and practice. And so in order to rebuke him or to show him that the church has authority over the Bible, they added these apocrypha books. 
There's like a number. I got them. They're at the very back. If you look at your notes, you got them at the very, they're at the back. You can see them there in your notes. That's the list. You see that, that short list there? Well, it's not so short. But all those extra books were added in 1546. Before that, the Catholic Church only recognized, like we do, 66. But they're going to show Martin Luther that the church has authority over the Bible. At New Community Church, we believe that the church is under the authority of the Bible. So that's a big difference. Uh, the pastoral staff here cannot add books to the Bible <laughs> because we're in subjection to it. We're not individuals who have an authority over it. So why aren't these apocrypha books included in the canon? Let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one, those that, that list of letters or books that you saw, they were around when Jesus walked on the earth. And Jesus never quoted from them, never referenced them as the word of God. Never. He did refer to the 39 books of the Old Testament. From time to time, he would make a reference. But he did not quote from the Apocrypha. Nor did any of the apostles after him. Peter, James, John, none of those individuals quoted from the Apocrypha as the Word of God. You understand? So it's pretty critical. But again, the issue was this. Listen here, you little German monk. We're going to show you're messing with the church. You're messing with the church. And the church has the authority over the Bible. It was thought since the Bible was given to the church, it was placed in submission to the church. But no, the Bible was given to the church as its authority for its doctrine, for its practice. And that's very, very important. Let's look at the next, and then I'll, I'll pause a second if you have any questions. The next one, if you look to the next page, on page two, it talks about the next authority, church traditions. Church traditions. The value of church traditions is best described in the following excerpt from the handbook for today's Catholic. The Second Vatican Council describes sacred traditions and sacred scriptures as being like a mirror in which the pilgrim church on earth looks at God. God's word or revelation comes to you through words spoken and written by human beings. Sacred scripture is the word of God inasmuch as it's consigned to writing under the inspiration of the divine spirit. Sacred tradition is the scripture from one sacred deposit of the word of God which is committed to the church. Roman Catholics accept as revealed truth that the supposed oral teachings of the apostles handed down outside of scripture and an editorial on Christianity Today gives us some more insight into the place of sacred traditions within Roman Catholicism. And this is from Christianity Today. A final aspect of this barrier over the authority of Scripture is that the church decides through its teaching office what is the true meaning of the Scripture, as well as what traditional revelations are truly genuine. This authority of the church to decide 
what true doctrine is resides infallibly with the Universal Council of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope when he speaks ex cathedra, that is from his throne as the Bishop of Rome and teacher of the entire church. Now, what does all of that say? It basically says that in Roman Catholicism, sacred traditions, what are they? They are practices and beliefs that evolved within the Catholic Church that were eventually recognized by the leadership of the church and primarily the Pope as being official doctrines and dogmas equal to scripture. In Roman Catholicism, the scripture in the Bible, the word of God and traditions orally transmitted are considered to be the word of God. So it's the writings of scripture and orally transmitted traditions which make up the word of God. And even the Bible is to be interpreted by the leadership of the church, not the individual church members. So in other words, you, you want to go to the leadership to understand the Bible. So it's the Bible as it's interpreted by the leadership of the church, along with sacred traditions, which again, were various practices uh, and various beliefs that percolated over time within the Catholic Church among its priests and theologians and leaders, and then divinely declared by the Pope to be a part of the Word of God. Um, uh, he, when, when he declared it to be the Word of God, or when the council affirmed it to be a part of the teaching, then it was said to be infallible. Some of you may have heard of papal infallibility. That's the next uh, uh, authority they have. So, so what do you, what is this? What are you talking about? Well, I gave you a list. It's kind of long. <laughs> um, on page four. And so they're by date. Uh, these are the kind of things that found their way. Now, keep in mind, these are things that were practiced and then later recognized by the officials in the church as official dogmas of the Catholic Church. And so they were to be believed and they were to be practiced in the church. Um, the doctrine of extreme unction. Uh, you guys know it more like the last rites. Uh, that did not come up until 526 AD. Uh, the last rites is when a priest goes and he he, has, he hears your final confession. He gives you the sacrament of uh, Holy Eucharist at that time. He, you, you, get, you receive communion. And then the sacrament of what they call to, or refer to as healing, where he anoints you with oil. And that's to prepare you for death, where you give your last confession. Why does he have to prepare you for death? Because if you, in life, commit a mortal sin, according to Roman Catholicism, if you commit a mortal sin and you die with that mortal sin unconfessed, then you don't go to purgatory, you go to hell. So you have to cleanse your, you have to confess that. It ha it's important that you do that, according to them. So that, I don't want to give a lot of time on all of these. The doctrine of purgatory, uh, what am I doing? I'm giving you from eight. I'm sorry, I should have begun at the bottom of page three. 
I jumped to page four, sorry, bottom of page three. Um, presbyters, uh, elders were first called priests by Lucian. He was one of the popes in the second, not in the second century, he was not a pope. He was a religious leader of that time. Um, elders are what the Bible describes as the leadership in the early church, a plurality of elders and deacons. Those are the only two offices that you find in the Bible. You don't find uh, deacons and trustees. You don't find archbishops and bishops or cardinals or popes mentioned anywhere in the Bible. It's just two offices. The teaching office and the authority office is the elders and the serving office is the deacons, okay? But Lucian began to describe the elders as priests. Now, why is he talking about them? Because they also were developing an idea of the institution of the Lord's Supper. In the early days of the church then, especially in the Catholic wing of it, they began to believe that the Eucharist, or Eucharist really means Thanksgiving, but that the, the wafer and the wine, that the priest was giving an authoritative power to take that wafer and that wine and it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. So the priest goes up to you and he says, body of Christ? And you have to say, amen. Because what, what do you mean by amen? I affirm that. Same thing with the wine. It's the blood of Christ. According to the Catholic's version or understanding of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to give one whole class to, to help you. Well, if you have, and, and by the way, Roman Catholicism believes that the Mass is a rep, repetition of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not the actual, but it's a repetition of it. And in the repeating of it, grace is imparted to those who are in attendance. What kind of grace? Grace that saves your soul, you see. So, we'll, and we'll get more to that, but I just wanted to point out to that. Matter of fact, I don't have a lot of time to cover. Um, well, wait a minute. I'm not done at 11.30, am I? Oh, that's good, that's good. 11.45, that's what I thought, okay. All right, so uh, number two, prayers for the dead. Um, and by the way, what, one of the things I want to, I forgot to say, I'm trying to brush myself, that none of these things that I'm reading to you are biblically supportable. In other words, you can't turn to the scriptures and find them. Um, number three, the veneration of angels and dead saints and the use of images. The mass as a daily celebration. The be wait, wait, are you saying the mass is not found in the Bible? It's not. Uh, when we get to it, I'll show it to you. The beginning of the exaltation of Mary and the first use of the term Mother of God by the Council of Ephesus in 431. Priests began to dress different from the laity and to wear special clothes in A.D. 500, uh, really mimicking the Old Testament high priest because God in his word prescri prescribed certain clothing that the high priest was to wear as they went to present the offering. So it began to be believed in the Catholic Church that if the priest was offering a sacrifice, and again, again in their mind, they're thinking they're re-offering the sacrifice of Christ, then there need to be special clothing that demonstrates their position. 
And so when you go, uh, you know, into a Catholic church, you find that the priest has a certain uh, clothing that designates him as a priest, according to the Catholic tradition. Because why? Why are you calling him a priest? Because he's offering a sacrifice. That's the highlight of the Mass. When he, he lifts up the wafer and he says, Lord, accept our sacrifice. That's exactly what he says. And then they continue on with the, with the service. So he's, he's doing that. And so they decided that he, had, he should have a special garment that signifies his role. Number seven, extreme unction. Explain that. The doctrine of purgatory, I, I shared that a little bit with you. We're going to go into that in detail later. Prayers begin to be offered to Mary, dead saints and angels in the Bible. There is no such thing. You pray directly to God, primarily God the Father, but you can pray to all three persons of the Trinity. It's just that the pattern of prayer in the Bible is always to God the Father, or Jesus himself. How did he begin his great model of prayer? What did he say? Our Father who art in heaven. So there's never a place where you're prompted to pray to any saint of any sort, uh, no matter when they lived or where they lived. Um, number 10, the first man was proclaimed Pope Boniface in 610. So that means for six centuries, there was no such thing as a Pope uh, in that time. 11, veneration of the cross and images and relics in 788. Holy water mixed with a pinch of salt and blessed by a priest was authorized in 850. The veneration of St. Joseph. The College of Cardinals began in 927. Uh, that began to be the, a group of cardinals who served as an extra uh, um, base of counsel to the pope, especially if he was considering a new doctrine. 15. Canon, canonization of dead saints, first by Pope John uh, in 995. Canonization means that um, it is the Roman Catholic Church that makes you qualified as a saint. Uh, now, what does that mean? In Catholic theology and teaching, you had to live an exemplary life that demonstrated your obedience to the doctrines of the Catholic faith. You had to have at least one bona fide miracle that someone can point to that you performed. And if that was the case, you were declared a saint. Now, what that meant is no stay in purgatory. You, you were too set apart. You would officially uh, go into, into glory. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verses, uh, verse... One and two, I think. He says in verse one, Paul called it as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sustenes, our brother, in verse two, to the church of God. Church, by the way, comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, means called out assembly. The church is never brick and mortar. It's never a building. The church is the company of the redeemed, the company of the saved, the people who have been born again and brought into union with Christ. The church of the living God, verse 2, which, at Corinth, to those, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, saints by calling 
with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So who's the saint according to the Bible? Pardon me? Every believer. Now why? Why is every believer a saint? Because the word saint comes from hagias. It means set apart. You are set apart. When you become a believer, you're a set apart one. You're to give your life to the Lord. You're set apart to him and set apart from your world. So you've already been recognized as a saint. Uh, in, in Paul's day, in the first century, this is what he described believers continuously as a saint. So guys, just remind your wife sometime today, honey, be careful. I am a saint. See if that goes over. I tried it. It didn't work. So just wanted you to know. All right, so that's the point. The Bible highlights that, that there's no canonization. 16, the mass developed gradually as a sacrifice. Attendance was made obligatory or obligatory. That's it. That's the word. Thank you for that. That sounds almost like speaking in tongues, but I'll, it's another topic. Um, by the way, most Roman Catholic people don't know today that if you miss mass on a Sunday, that's a mortal sin. That's according to the teaching of the church. It's very important for them. 17, the celibacy of the priesthood was decreed by Pope Hildebrand Boniface, 1079. So for 10,000 uh, years, that's right, 10,000 years, right? I'm sorry, 1,000. You could see I did not do well in math. You know, college algebra was the best six years of my life. Yeah. <laughs> 1,000 years. <laughs> uh, they, the church didn't have uh, priests who were not married. Uh, by the way, uh, it is thought in the Catholic Church that the first pope was Peter. Did you know that Peter was married? How do you know that? Because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And if you have a mother-in-law, what does that say about you? Come on, guys, with enthusiasm. Married. Because <laughs> you have a mother-in-law. <laughs> All right. Um, 18, the rosary, uh, prayer beads, copied from Hindus. Um, 19, the Inquisition of Heretics was instituted by the Council of Verona. The sale of indulgence, number 20. Uh, I'll explain those in more greater detail in another class. The seven sacraments defined by Peter Lombard. The sacraments are those things that have to be observed by a Catholic in order to eventually make their way into the presence of God. 22, the dogma of transubstantiation was decreed by Pope Innocent III in 1215. What's transubstantiation? It is the belief that the priest has the power delegated to him from the leadership of the church to turn the wafer and the wine into the literal body of Christ. That's called transubstantiation. Um, and that is a doctrine that was instituted by them. Um, the Confession 23, the confession of sins to a priest at least once a year was instituted by Pope Innocent. That is not found in the Bible, by the way. 24, the adoration of the wafer, the host, decreed by Pope Honorus, uh, in 1220. This is why when you go into Catholic Church, there is um, what is called a tabernacle, which is a small structure made out of gold, square generally, but not necessarily. And in 
in the, the little, what did I call it, uh, tabernacle. tabernacle, they place the host with the communion uh, they put in a cup. It's in a cup. And the priest, what does he do when he steps back? Does anybody know? He genuflects. Uh, every time he's genuflecting. Why? Because in the Catholic belief system, that host is the body of Christ. I mean, that Christ is here in your presence. And so you genuflect as an expression of worship. And that was instituted back then. Um, I'm going to see if I can get down here quickly. 25, uh, a scapular invented by Simon Stock of England uh, is something you wore around your neck. Uh, 26, the doctrine of purgatory proclaimed a dogma by the Council of Florence, 439. Uh, the doctrine of purgatory is not find, found in the scripture, but it was declared at that time. Um, now 27, tradition is declared of equal authority with the Bible by the Council of Trent in 1545. As I said, that's why you have two authorities in the Catholic Church, tradition and the Bible, you see. Um, the Immaculate Conception, 29, of Mary was proclaimed by Pope Pius IX in 1854. What's the Immaculate Conception? It is the belief that Mary was born into this world without original sin, and Mary never sinned in her entire life. So it's called, you see, the Church of the Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. It has to do with the doctrine, the belief that Mary was born without sin. There was no original sin principle in her, like has to all of Adam's progeny, and she never committed a sin. So um, that is, we'll, we're going to go into detail because I want you to see that. Although in her great Magnificat, which is her expression of worship after she was told that she was going to be the one, the body, her body would be used to bring the Messiah into the world. She's, she is to be highly honored and greatly respected because God chose that lady for a very special job. But she says in her great Magnificat, she calls God, she calls him my savior. Now, if you acknowledge God to be your savior, what is the implication? You're a sinner who needed to be saved. And she says that in Luke chapter two, she calls him her savior. So there's no place in the Bible. Matter of fact, uh, when we get to the study of Mary, I'm gonna show you all the passages in the Bible that talk about Mary. And the last one is in the book of Acts. Uh, she was with the church of just 120 after the, uh, uh, the ascension of Jesus. There was only 120 people in the church and she was with them. And then that's the last time it ever says anything about her. The Bible never says another thing about that, you see. So there's no, nothing in the Bible that would support this doctrine um, there are some other ones too. Um, in ver in number 30, Pope Pius IX condemned all scientific discoveries not approved by the Roman Catholic Church. 31, in infallibility of the Pope in matters of faith and morals proclaimed by Vatican Council 1870. He, when the Pope declares certain things to be true um, as a dogma, he's without the possibility of error. Pius the 11th 
condemned the public schools. I remember, I mean, I wasn't there in 1930, but I remember that being taught when I was at St. Richard's. Uh, you know, today I might kind of agree with them. <laughs> uh, 33, Pope Pius XI uh, reaffirmed the doctrine that Mary is the mother of God. And then this one, 34, the dogma of the assumption of the Virgin Mary was proclaimed by Pope Pius XII. Now, what does that mean? Just, remember I said the doctrine of immaculate conception is Mary was born without sin, never committed sin. The doctrine of the assumption of Mary is that when she died, her body was never buried. It was assumed into heaven. So when you go by a Catholic church, it says the church of the assumption. It's not referring to Jesus' resurrection. It's referring to the teaching that when Mary died, the body was secured by God himself and brought to heaven. You say, is that in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. That's what I'm trying to convey to you in all of this. Um, okay, so um, we've got another authority that we have to speak about in a 15 minutes. So I'm, take that page five. Are you on page five? Stay there with me. Let me read some of these things here. This whole concept of traditions being orally passed on as another aspect of God's revealed truth is not a new concept. The Pharisees also believed the very same thing. Uh, matter of fact, they had the, the law and they had a book called the Talmud. And in the Talmud were traditional teachings of the leadership of Judaism that had to be observed. They were, they, they were traditional in this sense, they were man-made. They came from man, but they were placed upon all Jews to be observed. And there was a clash between Jesus and the Pharisees on this issue. Would you like to see that clash? You're gonna see it anyways. Take a look at Mark chapter seven. I'll point it out to you. Mark chapter seven. Seven one, the Pharisees and some of the scribes. Again, Pharisees were law cops. They were the people in first century. They were Jewish people who had the authority to make sure you were keeping the law and what they called the traditions of the elders. So, and the scribes were like the teachers in first century uh, Judaism, but also the ones who meticulously made copies of the Old Testament law. So they're the ones, they approach Jesus at this time. And verse 2, and, and they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed. Parenthesis statement here for the Pharisees and all the Jews, do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the word of God. No, what does it say? The traditions. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? 
but eat their bread with impure hands. Did Jesus say, why are your disciples violating the Old Testament law? The word of God? No. What was he indicting them for? They were violating what? The traditions. The traditions. Verse 6, And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. And he quotes from Isaiah 29, 13. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Now watch this. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of who? Men. They were elevating their traditions to a greater authority than the written word of God. <laughs> and that's what he was saying. You're teaching as doctrines, as if these things came from God, but they really came from you. God did not prescribe these washings and ceremonial cleansings when you went to the marketplace. That's just something you added to the law, is what he was saying. And then he didn't stop. In verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. So in other words, you've ignored the scripture and you gave yourself to traditions. Now I'm pointing that out because I wanted you to see that Jesus made a distinction between that. You have the authority of God's word, but then you've got traditions that people make up. Traditions, listen, traditions are okay as long as they accurately square with a scripture or there's some reflection of scripture. Then that's fine, but they're not okay if they deviate from scripture. If you can't find them in scripture, if you're not compelled to do them in scripture, the point being made. All right, on that page, there's a quote there, middle from Christianity Today. It is still true today that nearly four-fifths of all priests reject the Bible as the first place to turn, that should say place, not pace, first place to turn in deciding religious questions rather than to test their religious beliefs by what the church says. Whenever your source authority does not correspond with God's truth, as revealed in God's word, then the door is open for you to declare just about anything as divine truth handed down from God through his apostles in an unwritten form or orally transmitted. Dr. MacArthur says, with this intrinsic, intrinsic, intricate, I'm sorry, system of definitions that allow for endless additional revelations that are equal to the scriptures and authority, it's easy to see that the Roman Catholic Church can spawn error after error as it conceives teachings not found in the Word of God. And once you allow for going beyond scripture, the gates are wide open and anything can pour through the dam. The next page. So what about all the talk of changes taking place within the Roman Catholic Church? There have been changes in terms of its involvement of lay people in the mass, and the mass is, is done in a little differently. However, there have not been any doctrinal changes whatsoever. So there have been changes in how things are done, 
like when I was a kid, the prayers were, or the whole mass was in Latin. I was an altar boy. I forgot to mention that. I was an altar boy. And I was saying things that I didn't quite understand, but they had a book that told you. Uh, you said, why didn't you know? Well, I was busy playing baseball and chasing girls. <laughs> My fault. But in any event, um, that uh, was done in Latin. Most of it was done with the priest in this direction toward the altar, and you were looking on. Well, then they changed that. They, they said, hey, that's not a good thing. They went to an English so that people could understand, and the priest was looking forward. So they made changes, but that doesn't indicate any change in what I just taught you about. The, the three authorities, the Bible, tradition, and papal infallibility. Those are still the three authorities in the Catholic Church. Now, I have given you a ton of stuff. I have got about seven minutes. If you have any more questions, because I, there's more I can give you, I'm just trying to pull back a little because I dump trucked on you. That's not always a good idea, the dump truck, but I had no other uh, thing. So anybody have any questions about anything I've said thus far? Yeah, Pat. I wonder how the Catholic Church reconciles the fact that Mary died. How does the Catholic Church reconcile that Mary died? Because death would be the result of sin. Yeah, Therefore, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is a very good point. If Mary died, um, uh, remember, do you guys remember what, uh, G, uh, what God said to Adam and Eve about eating the fruit? If they ate the fruit, what would happen? You will die. Now, they didn't die physically in that moment, but they died spiritually. But from then on, physical death. Physical death in the world is a testimony to the existence of sin in the world. You say, how do you know that? Because in Revelation 21, when believers go into the eternal state, there's no more death because there's no more sin, you see. So that would be a tough one to explain because her death itself, which they do acknowledge, would indicate that she's a part of the progeny of Adam, her death itself. But of course they would say, but when she did die, the body was assumed into heaven. So, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Romans uh, 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is Yeah, the, Chesley brings up Romans 6.23, which says, for the wages of sin is death. So you're a sinner. Evidence of that is death, physical death and spiritual death. There's spiritual death, too. Spiritual death is um, the deadness of your, it's a separation of your soul from God. Let me describe the three forms of death. Number one, physical death. The separation of the principle of life from your body. I just did a funeral. Uh, I saw the, the body of the person that had died and it became as inanimate as this chair. Why? Because at that point of death, the principle of life, the spirit of life left them. So that's physical death. Spiritual death. Everybody's born physically alive but spiritually dead. What is spiritual death? It is the separation of the soul from God. And it makes people indifferent to the things of God. Sometimes they're passively indifferent. Sometimes they're, um, what was the word? Uh, not ornery, but um, <laughs> hostile. Hostile and they're indifferent. I'm ornery sometimes. 
but hostile in their, their attitude toward God and His Word, or indifferent, or hate uh, God's Word. I was watching these ladies, who, and there was a, it was a protest against the um, Supreme Court because it reversed the, or it reversed Roe v. Wade, send it back to the state so they can vote on it. And um, they all had these placards and signs. And one of the guys had a sign, and, and it said, and this is, this is spiritual death, if Jesus comes back again, we'll kill him again. That's a severe example <laughs> of somebody who has no life, no spiritual life. He's indifferent, hostile, hatred toward God. Uh, that's what makes certain people indifferent when you walk up to them and you, you try to teach them the Word of God and you know, they don't want a part of it until God breaks into their life and miraculously causes them to be born again. Born again is to be born a second time from above. The minute that a person repents of their sin and trusts the salvation of their soul to the death and resurrection of Christ, the Spirit of God imparts spiritual life into your soul and He enables you to understand the Bible. What happened to me, just briefly, being a rock and roll musician and all of that back in 1973, uh, is when he, when he caused me to be born again, suddenly there was transformation, not perfection. I, I did not become perfectly holy and perfectly moral, but there was a whole newness to my life. I hated getting up on Saturday morning or Sunday morning. But suddenly I, I'm waking up every Sunday morning Suddenly, I have a desire to go to church. Suddenly, I'm reading the Bible. Where in the world did that come from? Transformation. The Bible says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. New things come. That's the testimony of conversion. Transformation. Transformation. And that means you have eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is the capacity now to body and soul body and soul. You're going to get a brand new body, by the way. That's a thing I'm very happy about, this body here. I've got some duct tape holding it together currently. But you can get a brand new body, and you will go into the presence of the Lord, and you will be with Him forever. But eternal death, we were talking about death, is the separation of the body and the soul from God forever in the lake of fire. That's eternal death. So that's kind of a long explanation of, of this thing. I still got a couple of minutes. Yeah, Charlie. Mortal sins. Pardon me? Mortal sins. Mortal sins. They say is, uh, I go to mass on Sunday, but then if you turn around and have the last rites, that absolves you of that? If you confess, if, if, you, if you confess to a priest your mortal sin, he has the capacity to forgive you according to their teaching. But let me go back. Venial sins are called venial because they're less severe. And when I get to that lesson, it, I have a list of what is called venial sins. You might call like white lies. Of course, the Bible paints all lies as black. <laughs> There's no white ones at all. But, um, uh, but some of those lesser offenses. Mortal sin is like breaking any one of the Ten Commandments. 
or in some cases, um, as I mentioned, like missing the mass and some of those other things uh, are described by, why is it called mortal sin? Because in Roman Catholic's theology of salvation, it's a cooperative effort. It's your willingness to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, plus making your contribution of obedience to the sacraments, living according to the standards, the commandments of God, doing good works. See, all of those things work with the sacrifice of Christ to one day procure your salvation after your time in purgatory. Now, what the Bible teaches is that the sacrifice of Christ was once for all time, that it completely satisfied God for our sin debt. And if you believe in that sacrifice, then you receive that salvation that is eternal. The sacrifice of Christ is not repeatable. It shouldn't be repeated. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 10 the writer of Hebrews goes out of his way to say, you know, in the Old Testament temple, the priests were offering all those sacrifices all the time. They were just a symbol. They were just trying to, to give you the focus of what God was going to do. He was going to supply a sacrifice that only needed to be offered once. And it was so effective that's only offered once and once never again. <laughs> you see? And so uh, a mortal sin in your way, in your cooperative efforts, if you, you know, you've been doing good and all that, but if you do a mortal sin, it, it empties your grace bank. That's probably the best way to, it, you get the balance back in your grace bank the minute you confess it. Your grace bank, I call it that because it's the best way I can give you an analogy. It's what you procured or a, a, a cured over a period of time through obedience and going to Mass and receiving the sacraments and obeying the Ten Commandments. So in Catholicism um, would be characterized by the word do. These are the things you have to do. Salvation in the Bible would be characterized by the word done. Jesus Christ has done effectively uh, in the paying of your sin debt, which you could never pay. Right. He paid even though he never committed sin in his life. He took your condemnation on himself. He bore your sins. And when he went to the cross and rose from the grave, he conquered over the two greatest enemies in the world, sin and death. And so that's, the big, that's another big difference we're going to go into detail on that, um, that there's a difference in the teaching on salvation. And why is there a difference? Because you have one authority versus three authorities. In the Catholic traditions, they teach just what I taught you, cooperative salvation. You've got to do what you've got to do in terms of your part to what Christ did. You understand that? It's very important. And um, so, say one thing. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Alex gave me a box of uh, 
plates, napkins, uh, forks. He did. All of these things. He didn't give me any food with it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in the app, if it's a volunteer. If someone wants to sign up to bring snacks, yeah, I'll make sure I, I'll have that in my trunk for the next six weeks. Yeah. I'll make sure I bring it. You make sure you bring it. What it is is um, technically, you see the table back there? Um, we can have snacks at the beginning of our class. We have some coffee. What else? Steak and eggs. What else? <laughs> Pat's going to make all that. Okay. Uh, no, but you can, if you want to bring a dessert to share with us all, um, there is, if you go on our app uh, and you go to the Roman Catholic class, and I think if you click under event, it says uh, volunteer to bring snacks. And you sign on. The reason you need to sign on is because you, otherwise we're going to have one Sunday where we have like 37 Dunkin' Donuts, 300 Krispy Kreme, and then the next time, nobody. <laughs> so, you know, and so we're trying to make sure it's all, it's all even out, if you'd like to do that. So thank you for bringing that up. So you don't have Tell to buy food. any of the other stuff, just the food. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's all. That's all. You just, we'll have the coffee, I guess. Yeah. Rick? Um, are you going to have these available on the uh, yes, I'm, I'm going to work on putting that one on the app. You need a couple more. I made the big mistake. No, I'm not very good at this stuff. Is I, I wrote that and then I put it on a PDF form, and I have no idea how to work with PDF forms. I'm from that generation that calls the Facebook, not this Facebook. Are you on the Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me? We're not going to be here the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. This is the only one that is PDF. All the rest are Word documents, which will be up. They'll be. You go over again uh, using our app, and you go to Groups, and you go to Roman Catholic, and you go to, go under Resources, and there will be each one of these. They'll, they'll, like next week Sunday's sheet will be put up there this week so you can get a head start, okay? So the other question is, uh, is he wearing a mic or the audio? Yeah, I am. <laughs> At first I thought this was one of those uh, those uh, dog collars that the oh, elders... Shot. Yeah, shock collar. Because they know sometimes I go off the chain, so I thought maybe they would use that, but no, they told me it just records things. What? We all have clickers. Yeah, we have, yeah, so... Yeah, there there technically is already an audio when I did this the first time. It's already when there you go on our website and you go um, to the right and uh, you will find a little box with lines. Click on that line. On the bottom there is media media. Click on media, and it will go to the sermons. And there's a selection. You can either pick an individual, Pastor Rich's sermons, or series. You click on series, then all of these icons come up on your screen, and you'll see a Roman Catholic Church icon. And you can start listening from, from I did this six months ago, six months ago. So, uh, and you know, 
What was that? We're going to play both of them together and see if you stay in the No, you're going to find that that doesn't work. I mean, it'll be similar. It'll be similar, but not. It, it may even be better when I did it before, but uh, uh, it'll be. Uh, it's good. You'll enjoy it. And again, just keep in mind that I'm not trying to do anything outside of what they have written. I'm just giving you what they've written. I'm not making any of this stuff up or creating this and out of whole cloth. Pardon me? You don't have authority. No, I don't. No. no. So. Can you make your announcements? Yeah. It was? Uh-huh. Women's conference on September 9th. Forty, fifty dollars. Yeah. yeah. That's good, you know, because normally this is what my phone does to me because I have my watch on. I'll be teaching and I'll be going, now I want to teach you about the doctrine of transubstantiation. I'll hold my hand up like this and she'll say, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> she does. And I don't know how that works. It just happens to me, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I don't understand what you're saying. So I get that a lot in the men's study. And they think that I'm, I'm doing that on purpose, and I'm not. It's just an accident. I don't know what happens. And it's usually after I say something, you know, that can be difficult. It, I almost, so now I've been trying to keep my hand down, this one, because the minute I start talking about it, then she pops up. I do not understand what you're saying. She's nice, but that's all yes. Let me pray and then we can take up. Lord, um, thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ. And thank you so much for the grace that you bestowed upon us by giving us the gift of the scripture so that we can look into it and find the will of God, the purposes of God, the plan of God, the formula of salvation from God, uh, the eternal destiny of the believer, and all of the other spiritual benefits to come to those who know Christ. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.